I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. And while you're turning there, just want to ask you to reflect upon a few questions. What do you do when loved ones make decisions that contradict everything you've taught them? Wrestle with that question for a moment. Do you throw your hands up in the air, just kind of giving up? Do you take their decision personally as if you were directly responsible for their actions? His power or his presence? I think they're understandable reactions, but none of them would reveal a heart that is at rest, right? or a heart that is trusting in God's good providence. And so if any of these sentiments resonate with you, I do pray that you'll find encouragement from our passage this morning. Samson's birth narrative has been carefully laid out in chapter 13, and it's prepared us for an important character in redemptive history. Uh, We anticipate him doing great things because of the announcement of his birth and the miraculous way that it was given. It came directly from the angel of the Lord in Judges 13, verse 3. And he was the only child of a woman who had been barren, we read. That generally was a sign that God was up to something miraculous. He was also set apart as a Nazarite from his birth. And so we looked at that last week. And then we concluded with this statement of the Spirit of the Lord beginning to stir him. In verse 25 there, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. And so our anticipation is raised. We're we're waiting to see what the Lord is going to do through Samson. And as we read this chapter and the rest of this lengthy narrative um, throughout the weeks, ahead, you may find yourself going back and forth on your impression of Samson. Was that good or was that bad, what he just did? How am I supposed to interpret this? And so I do want you to think about that as we're looking at chapter 14 here. Try to know what's problematic about Samson's actions. How are we to interpret this and understand it? And hopefully by the time we're done, you'll have some answers to some of those questions, but you probably will still be left scratching your head a little bit. Well, let's ask the Lord for his help before we read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of this book, for sending the judges to rescue a wayward people, people who were prone to wander, people who oftentimes succumb to the temptations of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. They saw the idolatry that surrounded them and they were tempted to follow it. Lord, help that to be a warning to us. May our study of this passage bring us back to you to restore any broken relationship with you. 
And Lord, to glorify you in our words, our thoughts, and our actions. So speak to us, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are softened to this truth that we might respond appropriately. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Judges chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as, a, as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him. And said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. And she told the riddle to her people and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger 
than a lion. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, let's begin with this first section, these first 10 verses, Samson's providential marriage. Samson's providential marriage. How are we to understand his decision to marry a Philistine? Immediately, we think that's not right. What he's doing there is, is problematic. And there really can be no doubt that it was wrong for Samson to request a wife from among the Philistines. As his parents clearly understood in, in verse 3, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you would take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? So part of the Lord's complaint against Israel that we reflected upon early in the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we read this. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So part of this intermarrying with the nations was linked directly to idolatry, to the worship of their gods. It was making treaties as well with these foreign nations, you know, intermarrying with leaders so that they might have peace among them, allowing them to remain in the promised land. So all of this was prohibited. You have it all the way back in Exodus chapter 34, 16, the prohibition against marriage outside of the covenant family. You have it again in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. But then we come to verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. How are we to read that? This is from the Lord. God will use this relationship to ultimately bring judgment, to begin bringing judgment upon the Philistines. So God will use this for his glory. But that doesn't justify Samson's sinful motivations. The fact that God can use your sinful ambitions, your sinful lusts, somehow turn that for his glory and even result in your good, oftentimes, it doesn't excuse the sin. When it comes to marriages at this time, um, one commentator observes this, Samson's marriage has close similarities with a form found among Palestinian Arabs in that it is a true marriage, but without permanent cohabitation. So the woman is a mistress of her own house, and the husband, known as Jaws Musarib, becomes a visiting husband. He comes as a guest and brings presents. 
And that does certainly seem to fit with the rest of the narrative as we see Samson going back to his parents' home after he's already married. Um, there's, it's, it's just a, a bit of a, a confusing circumstance, and, and it very well could be related to this kind of a marriage arrangement where it is an official marriage, but it's, it's not one where they permanently live together. And it does reveal something of Samson's mixed motives, right? Whenever he gets involved with women. We'll see it again in chapter 15, verse 1. In chapter 16, we'll see it again when it comes to Delilah. This is Samson's downfall. Well, we'll come back to that, but let's look at verses 5 and 6. And Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, giving him the strength to kill this lion with his bare hands. And we've seen the Spirit of the Lord empowering the judges previously. We saw it with Othniel, Gideon, and Jephthah, giving them military might, giving them strength, supernatural strength. And so what does this mean? What are we to take of this killing of a lion? Well, to the, the spirit rushing upon him, that the spirit's activity in the lives of those previous judges that we mentioned, Othniel, Gideon, and Jephthah, you, you read of it once in each one of those narratives. Here, you'll see in Samson's life, the spirit is mentioned four different times. The spirit of the Lord coming upon him to do some mighty deed. And so it's not a, a definitive reference to the quality of, of an individual's character, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. It's not like Samson stands out as some great man of integrity, and so the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, blessing him for that, for his upright character. That's not what's happening. But it does seem to indicate that the Lord's will is being accomplished, I mean, I don't see any other way of understanding it. The Lord's will is being done in this situation. So the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul and David. And in fact, in the case of David, you have additional parallels with David's own experience with lions and bears, killing them with his bare hands, taking care of his flock as a shepherd. You read that in 1 Samuel 17. And so this is our first preview in Samson's life of the Lord's strength that's revealed through Samson. It's the Lord's empowering that we get a view of here. And then Samson doesn't inform his parents. Samson, we don't know why that is. And maybe you go, is, is he being secretive? Is he being deceitful here? It clearly is a secret, but why? Well, the, the reader understands who gets the glory because it's very clear the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So we're to glorify God for this activity. We'll come back again to that. But verse 7, and then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in his eyes. Apparently, Samson, for Samson, this was love at first sight, and in fact, it was only 
love at first sight because he hadn't even met her. He had only seen her in the first, first few verses. And then he said, uh, or now we have the first in account that he has interacted with her and she's only grown more attractive to him. She's right in his eyes. That left a favorable impression. And so here we want to say, Samson, slow down. This is, you're moving way too fast. This is probably not wise. You hardly know her. But the Lord is up to something here. And so after some days, he returns to take her, referring to the marriage, that he, that he is going to marry her. So time has passed. He's now ready to marry her. And upon his return, he stops and sees this swarm of bees that has formed in the hive of the carcass of the lion that he had killed. Very odd. And so Samson scrapes out some of the honey for himself to eat, and then he shares it with his parents. And then again, we read that he doesn't inform them about where it came from. So some argue that Samson here is breaking his Nazarite vow. That by, by touching a carcass, he had, we had read that the Nazarite was to not be around dead, the dead. Number six, verses six and seven, we looked at the, the full passage last week, but just look at these two verses. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And you say, well, it seems like he's violating that then because he's gone by this carcass of the lion. I don't think that's the case. I mean, in number six, it's clearly referring to dead human bodies, a dead human, because in the very next verse, it says, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. So I don't think this is an indication of him breaking his Nazarite vow, but he gives some of the honey from the carcass to his parents and he doesn't inform them. So why is it emphasizing now twice Samson's secrecy? It, it does seem to be something significant at the very least. And you can either say, if you're inclined to think, to question Samson's actions, that he's being deceitful, or you can say, that the Lord is trying to indicate something significant here. And I think as you read in the next section with the riddle that he gives to his wife's companions, uh, that the narrator is simply setting up the scene to show that Samson had kept this to himself. This was not information he had shared with anyone. So when the companions come back to him with the answer to the riddle, he knows it could have only come from his wife. So Delroth Davis does a good job of summarizing the, the structure of this chapter, and he talks about the verb going down. We've already, we, we read it actually uh, five times in the passage. We've also had an indication of a secret that coincides with each one of those verses. So you have Samson goes down to Timnah and sees a woman, and it's indicated that the, that the Lord had a secret purpose. 
Then you have in verses 5 and 6, Samson with his father and mother goes down to Timnah, and you have this secret slaying of the lion that takes place. In verses 7 and 9, Samson goes down and talks with the woman, and you have the secret of the honey, where the honey came from. In the next section, verses 10 through 18, his father goes down to the woman, and Samson puts on this feast for them. And there's the secret of the riddle that is presented. And then finally, at the conclusion of the chapter, verses 19 through 20, Samson goes down to Ashkelon and kills 30 Philistines. And this isn't secretive, this is the climax. This is what all the secrets have been building towards, which is the power of Yahweh's spirit to bring deliverance, or at least to begin that deliverance from the Philistines. And so that's the, the climax here. And, and verse 10, Samson begins preparing this wedding feast for his wife. And some, again, have questioned what he's doing here. Is he most feast of this kind would have involved wine, would have involved strong drink, as Samson was forbidden from drinking for the Nazarite vow? So does feasting imply that Samson drank wine? Again, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, as number 6.3 says. He shall drink no vinegar from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. Well, I, I, it doesn't say anything here that, about Samson indulging. He, he puts on this feast, and obviously there would have been a celebration, but it doesn't say anything about Samson breaking his Nazarite vow. And so I think it's, it's simply those who have preconceived notions of his guilt that would suggest that kind of interpretation. Once again, what's taking place here in Samson's marriage is God showing his providential care, his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, as we read in the Shorter Catechism, question 11. So is God sovereign even when we're not aware of his actions? Of course. Right? He's sovereign whether you realize it or not. But is that the case for Samson? Is that what Samson, is he just being used by God, but he's, he's completely rebellious and, and ignorant of God using him? Well, I, I do think that Samson is a flawed judge. But as he is mentioned in Hebrews 11.32, he's a man of great faith. And so I don't think you can challenge that. I think he had to have some knowledge of the Spirit's work. In fact, where else would this strength of his come from? Do you think he just, he, he did a lot of working out and he realized that he could rip a lion apart like a goat? Of, of course, he knew something supernatural was taking place in his life. However, his lust for women leads to his downfall time and time again. And so we're reminded that we need an even better judge than Samson. All right, we need a perfect judge. Sin was present in every single one of these judges' lives. Even Othniel, whom it doesn't tell the full story of his life, but we know he was sinful. Just like every prophet, priest, and king that led to and pointed forward to Jesus Christ, right? It wasn't until Jesus Christ came 
in the weakness of our flesh and overcame every sinful temptation, avoided every evil snare, and never married idolatry. And he was perfect. Again, we'll come back to Jesus in the end, but let's, let's finish out this section of the riddle. Because in conjunction with the wedding, God was also orchestrating the means for Samson to give the answer or to provide this providential riddle. Verses uh, 11 through 20. And so his wife invites 30 companions to attend their wedding feast, as would have been their custom. Verses 12 and 13, Samson bets them. It's like he's having fun with them. There's 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. This would have been the, the, the linen garment that, that they would wear next to their skin, and then the outer garments, like the coat that goes over that. He's saying, if, if you can understand this riddle, I'll pro- provide each one of you with a new set of clothes, basically. And if you can't solve the riddle, then you each need to give me a set of clothes, right? So he's going to have this incredible wardrobe of 30... Uh, 30 sets of outfits here from these 30 men if they are unable to provide the answer to the riddle. And since Samson hadn't told anyone, it seems unlikely that the Philistines would be able to solve it. As we're reading along, we anticipate them failing. And then we see this, uh, verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house. There's a parallel here to those hot-headed Ephraimites from chapter 12, right, who, who escalate things rather quickly. We're going to burn your, your house over you. Here, they're speaking of the household of this woman and her father. They're literally saying, we're going to burn you, not burn your, the structure of your home down, but burn your family. So, these companions weren't the closest of friends, apparently. Verses 16 and 17, Samson's wife ends up weeping before him and all the way until the end of the feast. So, days four through seven, she's, she's begging him in tears to tell her the riddle. And she eventually compels him to give her the answer which she then immediately tells her companions. And it all foreshadows a far greater error in divulging the secret of his strength to Delilah in a few chapters. And in both cases, once again, we see his downfall was because of cajoling women, women who were begging him to tell him his secret. Verse 18, the Philistines Uh, answer Samson's riddle, and he knows it's only because they heard it from his wife. You would not have known unless you had plowed with my heifer. Not sure where that comes from, but the idea is that they clearly were, were in conversation with his wife, if not more. And I think he's implying something more is going on there in their relationship with his wife. But we conclude here, once again, with the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. Now the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him so that he's able to pay his debt by
by killing 30 Philistines who occupied Ashkelon. Ashkelon would have been in Judah's territory. You've read about that city specifically in Judges chapter 1, verse 18. So here we now see that the Philistines have begun to occupy that place. And so he goes there and he kills 30 of them. And so this is the opportunity against the Philistines that the Lord was seeking. There's nothing negative about what he does here. Uh, you, you, cannot, you cannot impugn him going to Ashkelon and, and killing 30 men there. It wasn't rash. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, once again giving him the supernatural strength to do this, to bring the beginning of deliverance. And then finally, he returns home in anger, and it's understandable that he's angry. Right? He's, while he's gone from his wife, she's given to his best man. So once again, with the ending of that, this passage with such a sympathetic view of Samson, saying, saying that his wife was given to his best man, it, it's to leave us with a, a bit of compassion for him. His wife showed more loyalty to her companions, one of whom she ends up marrying while Samson's away. So the biggest question we face in this text is how could God ordain an ungodly marriage even if it was in order to judge an ungodly people? How could he do that? This is a mystery that dates back to God's decree of man's first sin. It's a question we've faced from the beginning of time. Well, ever since sin entered the picture. God has foreordained the wicked actions of men, yet he is not the author of their sin. It's hard to understand. It's hard to accept. But men remain fully responsible for their sinful actions. And so it reminds us of our finite wisdom. J. Gresham Machen writes this, Yes, God has told us much. Is it surprising that he has not told us all? I do not think so, my friends. After all, we are but finite creatures. Is it surprising that there are some mysteries which God in his infinite goodness and wisdom has hidden from our eyes? Is it surprising that there are some things in his counsels about which he has bidden us be content not to know, but instead just to trust him who knows all? Can you be content to simply trust him when you're confused, when you don't understand what's happening? I do believe Samson was aware of the Spirit working through him, and I think the Spirit of the Lord strengthens him to kill a lion with his bare hands and later on empowers him to strike down 30 Philistines, and I think he understood what was taking place. He had supernatural strength. I don't think there's any other way for him to explain that supernatural strength than with the, the Lord's blessing upon him. And so the Spirit of God reveals this divine activity through supernatural power in a very personal way several times throughout the book of Judges. In Othniel's life, Gideon's life, Jephthah, and now Samson. And so the, the lesson for us here, I think, we can learn from the witness of Manoah and his wife. 
Samson's parents. Their anxieties regarding their son's marriage stemmed from a lack of knowledge. Right? That's what we read in verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So I'm not suggesting that they would have had no objections to the marriage. Right? In fact, I think it was right for them to raise their objections to Samson. However, they might have been able to remember the promises that God had given them about their son and trusted in his sovereign purposes, rested, in fact, in his goodness, despite what their son was doing. And so Samson, let's admit, is a confusing figure. And his narrative is filled with ambiguous situations. We're not done facing those ambiguities. I can't imagine any parent envisioning this kind of marriage for their child. But this is the marriage that God clearly ordained for Samson. It was an emotionally painful and short-lived marriage that God used to accomplish the beginning of his judgment upon the Philistines. And so one thing is abundantly clear throughout this story. It's that God remained in complete control. He wasn't caught off guard by any of this. Samson's marriage was providential as well as the riddle that he gave to his wife's companions. Both experiences set up the beginning of deliverance from the oppression of the Philistines. And so can you relate to all of the ambiguity in your own life? Do you resonate with his parents' lack of knowledge? God may be accomplishing his greatest purposes in situations where we are given the least amount of knowledge. I think that's what we find in this passage. Right? And the greatest example of that is at the cross. Even though Jesus had repeatedly warned his disciples about his death, every single one of them were caught off guard. They weren't prepared for it. If they had understood what Jesus was saying, they simply didn't believe it would actually happen. And so they certainly weren't prepared for how it happened and, or when it happened. Their experiential knowledge of Christ's redemptive plan was, was minimal. And so they were shocked and horrified when he died. And yet, what was taking place on the cross? In the midst of all the tears, in the midst of all the chaos and confusion and darkness, God was accomplishing his greatest purpose. On the cross, Jesus Christ finished the work of redeeming the elect from the condemning oppression of their own sin. He didn't just begin the work, he completed it. It was finished. He condemned sin in the flesh, and he rose again, defeating death, and he ever lives to intercede for all those who place their faith in him. And so do you believe the gospel in the face of life's uncertainty? Are you believing the gospel even now? If not, 
I urge you to turn away from your sin and turn to the only judge, Jesus Christ, who completed the work that was necessary for your salvation. And trust in him, even when you're filled with confusion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder